So, welcome everyone. Um, it's a pleasure uh, for both uh, of us uh, to be here today and to um, introduce uh, this uh, new lecture on risk behavior and applications to health policy. Uh, I've been uh, told to you know, let you know that there's been a change in the presenter, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the presenter's name. Uh, actually, both of us um, uh, are, um, were not in the original program and course we are uh, presenting today. Now, the reason why we are here is because uh, we are economists and we do research on risk. And, um, and risk is becoming a central aspect of health economics research, health policy research. Uh, the reason for that is quite obvious. Um, you know, there's, in, in, it's increasingly recognized that individuals are subject to anomalies and uh, cognitive biases, which are um, influencing health behavior and health policy must be tailored in a way so that uh, these biases are uh, you know, taken into account in, in, in policy making. On the other hand, uh, there's a theoretical reason to uh, do research on, on risk and the, the reason is because in the area of health there are plenty of market failures. I'm not sure whether you know what a market failure is, but it is that markets fail uh, when certain conditions are not met, and particularly two conditions are pretty prevalent. Uh, one is a market, uh, sorry, information imperfections. Individuals don't hold perfect information. Uh, they have imperfect foresight. Uh, they don't know what's, what, what type of illness they will suffer in the future. Uh, they, uh, you know, fail to ensure risks that they are exposed to because they don't perceive them, and uh, increasingly. Um, they tend to uh, overestimate risks that, that uh, are probably very small and, on the other hand, uh, underestimate risks that are uh, quite large. Now, now in, in order to account for, the, for all these effects, it is important to do uh, risk research, and that's what uh, essentially we're trying to, to explain today. We'll try to illustrate that with uh, examples of research that we've done ourselves rather than research that someone else has done. And uh, essentially, that that's just an introduction of what we will do. Um, uh, essentially, this, this presentation will be quite interactive. You'll see that, that myself and Caroline will be uh, you know, stepping in and out. Uh, that's kind of the idea of, uh, of the whole thing. And uh, I think that uh, there's nothing else for me to, to say to introduce the lecture. Caroline, it's your turn. Okay. Thank you. So let's talk about something that we're all very familiar with. How did you get here today? Obviously, there's a lot of ways you could have gotten here. These are just four of them. Um, let's walk through kind of the costs and benefits of each on the surface. Obviously, we can have a bus here. Bus is nice because it's quite cheap. Um, you may get stuck in traffic. You probably get to read the newspaper or something else, so you're not actually driving yourself and you have time to do some of your own pleasure reading or work reading. It can be really fast if there isn't traffic, but it could be quite crowded. So there's a lot of kind of costs and benefits to weigh in thinking about taking the bus. If you don't want to take the bus, you could take a tube, right? Tube can be very fast. It's usually pretty reliable. It can be really, really crowded, as we're all probably unfortunately aware. Um, but again, you could read, you could sort of spend time doing your own thing, listening to your music or whatnot. Then there's a taxi, which of course is very nice. 
The costs are a lot higher than, say, the tube or the bus. And you could also spend time on the phone, doing your own work, and it's quite comfortable. But again, you could get snarled out in traffic and you've got to pay a lot for it. Then there's the bike. Now, I personally don't have the nerve for the bike in central London. Joanne does. He does it every day, and I really am in awe because I bought one and it didn't work out too well for me. I've kind of given up on it. But clearly there's health benefits to it. There's health benefits to riding to work every day or riding to where you're going. And it's cheap once you put down the initial cost of purchasing all the equipment you need. Now, what happens when this occurs? So someone sneezes on your mode of transport. Now, in the case of a bus or tube, it matters a lot more, especially today as we're entering the general cold and flu season, but also we do have the risk out there of swine flu. So the call for the sneeze all of a sudden becomes a very interesting question for people like us who are looking at risk research in the context of health policy. So in the face of a health risk and a general decision about public transport modes or transport modes in general, what do you do when a kind of uncertain situation has arisen? The question is, do you do something preventative? Do you move away from that person who's sneezing? Do you just ignore and say, you know what, I'm not really worried about contracting swine flu, so who cares? Do you wear a mask? I've seen people in airports wearing masks on airplanes and whatnot. So there's lots of options that you could take. You could also just say, you know what, I'm done with, I've had enough people sneezing and coughing on me, I'm going to choose some other sort of form of getting around. Now, obviously, making a decision like that means that you could have cost implications, time implications, and so on. So there's a lot of dimensions to making that choice. And it's not just about how you perceive the risks of someone coughing or sneezing on you in today's environment. This is a kind of small example of the way that we think about risk research within the health context. So our gender, our age, our socioeconomic status, our educational background, where we've come from, where we live now, what our household looks like, the behaviors that we've been around amongst our peers and our coworkers, all sort of influence the way that we may behave. So there's a direct relationship between all of those characteristics and behaviors that we may, um, we may undertake. What kind of behaviors am I talking about? It's not just about making a choice about transport in the face of swine flu risk. It's about things like, do I buy long-term care insurance? So when I think about aging, should I prepare for the day when I may need help at home or live in an assisted living facility? Who, who is it that decides that that's an important thing? Who decides to get vaccinated and for what? Do they, do they decide to get their child vaccinated and why? If you have two surgery options, let's say laparoscopic versus open abdominal surgery, the doctor may give you information about success rates for each one. What is it that makes you decide which one you want to go for? Is it that you listen to what the doctor says? Is it that you ask your friends? Is it that you do some reading on your own? Is it some sort of combination of all that? Another example would be medicines choices. So in a health system where you may have some choice over which medicine you take, what makes someone refuse a generic substitution? So what makes someone say, no, you know what, I want the branded drug. I'll pay for it even. Um, 
The more general example is in public health. Who smokes? Why do they smoke? Who binge drinks? Who has risky sexual behaviors? And so on. So there's a lot of behaviors that just who we are influences directly. But in the field of risk research, we think about a kind of interim step here that's very important. It kind of both mediates how the way we are influences our behavior. And the ways that kind of risk perception would be developed is the more you know, perhaps, the less likely you're to perceive a risk or the more accurate your perception of risk may be. The more you feel like you have some control over the situation, the term perceived behavioral control. So if I think, okay, maybe there's a risk out there, but I can do something about it, then perhaps I'll perceive the risk as lower. Or optimism, the thought that, you know what, I'm pretty healthy, I take care of myself, so it's not going to happen to me. That's another influence on risk perceptions. There's political beliefs. So if I don't know much about something, am I going to just listen to the news and listen to the political party that I sort of agree with? And that's how I decide about things. And Joanne will go through some evidence of that in the case of nuclear power. There's also proximity to risk, the extent to which I have had experience with it, therefore I feel comfortable about it. So there's a lot of ways that risk can influence behavior. And the extent to which some of this stuff occurs also depends upon just our general makeup as human beings. Now clearly within the specific category of health risks, there's a lot of research already that can inform our understanding of people's behaviors. Economics has told us a lot about what does it cost, let's say, for 20% of society to smoke. We know what that costs for the health service. We know what that means for pensions. We know about how taxes influence behaviors on alcohol use and, let's say, smoking, too. So economics tells us a lot about the monetary side of things, what it all means for us as a society. Public health is hugely important. The health policy literature is a very big side of understanding risk and behavior research in health. So epidemiology studies tell us actually how risky something is. The epidemiologists are the ones that are modeling out how likely it is for any one of us to get swine flu. That's a figure that we could use to inform our analysis of whether individuals perceive risk correctly or not. But it's the epidemiologists that really understand the disease. The public health literature is full of work on what kind of awareness campaigns work, what kind of anti-tobacco strategies are effective, with which populations, and what kind of government, what kind of role should the government play in helping people make decisions about their health and their health care usage. And finally, psychology matters quite a lot in this work. So I specifically said social psychology here, where society's opinions on behaviors matter too. Think about the smoking ban. The early evidence from the smoking ban tells us that the more that smoking is becoming socially unacceptable, it's a little bit easier for people to quit because it becomes more awkward to be a smoker. So all these fields really matter in thinking about health and risk research. But what we attempt to do is take both this public health and health policy framework, really understanding about what is good health policy, and then economics research, which really questions how do people use information? Are they perfect decision makers? Together, those two things will help us to improve our strategies in all kinds of health matters, tobacco, nutrition, alcohol, how do we react to pandemics, 
and medicine strategy, just to give you a few examples. So I'd like to run through quickly some of the kind of evidence base already for some of these health issues and then how that influences risk research. So obviously we know with smoking from a recent Department of Health review on what's going on with tobacco control in England, we know that the higher the socioeconomic class, the less likely one is to smoke. So smoking rates in England are about 22% right now, the average prevalence rate, and we see that it's almost 30% for routine and manual workers and goes all the way down to 15% for managerials and professionals. So we see some variation based solely on socioeconomic status. We also see regional variation. So across England, we see that in the north, smoking rates are higher, 23% to 25%, whereas in the south, they can be a bit lower. So southeast, 20%, and London, 21%. So a couple of percentage points below the English average. And this is true, I used England as an example, but you could have regional variation in pretty much any country in terms of smoking, obesity, and all these different public health issues. Another one, childhood obesity. It's a very in vogue policy issue today. And this piece of work just shows that a child is more likely to be obese if he or she lives in a household where one or both parents are also obese. So this is really showing that the social environment in which you're in influences your health outcomes. Across the top of this chart are five of the major burdens of disease that we're facing in England, developed countries worldwide. So mental illness, obviously it's impacted by alcohol. Heart disease, impacted by smoking, alcohol, obesity, and many other things. Stroke, same thing. Asthma, smoking influences it as well as obesity. Diabetes, obviously obesity influences diabetes too. So this is all findings from the epidemiological literature. And I could have added a few more down here on the left side. So society's behaviors or peer choices. There's a lot of behavioral factors that influence the big disease trends that we're worried about for health systems. But then where do we come into play? How can we help this situation? And the role of risk research really in the health context is to say, so there's a preexisting set of endowments on the upper left-hand side there, where, okay, we have our makeup, our demographic makeup, socioeconomics, age, gender, and so forth. We also have our general appetite for risk in general in life. So the extent to which I am willing to, let's say, parachute out of an airplane or ride a bike through central London, all those things are about how much of a risk taker am I. That influences how I view the world. Now, if I start then in the yellow blocks and think about, okay, if I have an image or a view on how risky something is, what would make it change? Well, there's two sort of categories that we say make it change. One is receiving new endogenous information. What I mean by that is I try something, I develop a new view on it myself. So I try smoking or I binge drink or I go on the tube and someone sneezes on me and I don't get sick. That's new endogenous information. Then there's a lot of types of exogenous information, so coming from an outside source. 
I could look at my parents, my peers, or my coworkers' behaviors. I could get new information from a doctor who says something to me about how I should change my lifestyle choices. I could get something, if I was an adolescent, I could get something from my school teacher who's doing a public health program. I could be watching TV and see an advertisement about reducing smoking or good nutritional choices. So the exogenous new information is really about all the different ways that we come up with how we view a decision. Now, that information alone doesn't mean that we're going to use it. So we could be told a bunch of things, but it may just kind of go in one ear and out the other. And we may just see it as unimportant and not really think about it. So then the next step is that we gauge how much we really think this information is credible. So the extent to which I'm going to take that information on board and it's going to do anything for my development of perceptions of risk and then behavior. So if I deem that information credible, then I would be updating my what we call stock of information. My information basis changes. Then my attitude or my opinion about making some sort of behavior would also change. With that new information, I might think about the world a little bit differently, which then informs how I perceive the risks of a decision. By incorporating both attitude and information, it's not just a rational process where new information may update how you think about a risk, but also that new information may influence how I feel about that risk. So it's not just a cut and dry number situation. It's that there's an emotional aspect, too. Some of that emotional aspect comes in in the cognitive biases side of things, which Joanne alluded to in the introduction. So the extent to which I change the way I view information because of the way it makes me feel and the way I interpret it because of my situation of uncertainty. So I've developed my risk perceptions, which are partly due to some sort of feelings and then rational risk-benefit calculus. And then I decide whether I'm going to undertake a behavior or not. So get that laparoscopic surgery versus open surgery or choose one medicine over another. In this process, I have two errors here, one going in one direction and then one going in both directions, because this is an iterative process. And one of the big areas of research within this field is how iterative is this process? Do we constantly update our perceptions of risk? Or is it just a one-way trip? And if we think about some of the ways that biases come into play, so that we don't interpret information exactly as it may be on the surface, some of the evidence shows that when there's a very high amount of risk, individuals often underestimate that risk. Whereas if there's a very low level of risk, individuals often perceive it as higher. So the dashed line on this graph that goes diagonally is actual risk. And posterior assessment is the way that I think about the risk with new information. So as we go out on the x-axis, the posterior assessment is lower than the actual risk, meaning that as actual risk goes up, I'm perceiving risks as lower than they actually are. And conversely over here, where the solid line is above the dashed line. So when the risk is small, I'm perceiving it as higher than it actually is. And this is true for most risks across beyond even the health spectrum, also environmental risks, transport risks, and so on. 
So that's the introduction to the theory. And Joanne is going to take you through some examples from aging research, research in new technologies, and then our research on food choices. Excellent. So as Carolyn mentioned, we've chosen a few examples in the areas of aging, food, and new technologies because they are the most evident ones, which actually we've done research on. And, of course, we don't have the time really to go into details on our research, but we probably can illustrate some of the findings that our research has attained. But essentially what our research is looking at is whether individuals perceive risks in a way that is consistent with the actual risk. And the actual risk is normally what experts come across with. It tends to be defined in terms of a probability. And normally what we tend to do is ask individuals to assess a subjective probability, so a probability that ranges from 0 to 100, and then we compare that probability with the real probability of an event to take place according to experts. Now, in the area of aging, we've examined particular studies looking at disability and longevity. Disability is important because it determines the uptake, for instance, of long-term care insurance, and longevity is particularly important. Whether people perceive longevity risk is important because, of course, it determines whether they save enough for old age and so on and so forth. And what we are finding is that individuals are affected by optimism, so people tend to be optimistic about the future, and accordingly they tend to perceive that they live longer than they actually are expected to live and that they will have a lower probability of facing disability than they actually have and so forth. Then there is evidence showing that publicity matters. I mean, if a risk is being highly publicized, people tend to perceive the risk more accurately. And even in the case of smoking, people tend to overestimate the risk of smoking, and that's been actually quite controversial because it's been an argument that tobacco companies have used to defend their position. Then social learning. I mean, we learn about risk not only by getting information from different public and private sources, as Caroline was mentioning, but we learn as well from observing other individuals. If we are surrounded by people that smoke, we tend to perceive that smoking is less risky. And if we, just the other way around, if we are surrounded by extremely healthy people that go to the gym every other day, then our perception is adjusted accordingly. Then there is evidence of gender effects, which are still under research, but seem to suggest that women tend to exhibit a higher risk perception of any type of risk. And on the other hand, defending women here, the findings suggest that women seem to perceive life expectancy more accurately than men. So although they tend to overestimate certain risks, then they seem to perceive more accurately other risks. And, of course, looking at how people perceive the risk in the area of aging is quite important because, as mentioned, it determines the uptake of different types of insurance. For instance, in countries like the States or developing countries where they don't have a public insurance scheme, it determines whether people take private health insurance, and that's quite relevant. But even in European countries, the market for long-term care insurance is not really growing. And one of the reasons 
that explains the slow development of this product is the fact that people don't really perceive the risk. And, of course, savings for old age. I mean, the whole debate on pensions is totally anchored on people perceiving the risk of old age or longevity risks. So here is just some evidence on how people perceive the risk. The blue line is people's, for instance, in the upper part, you would have males' perceptions of risk, and the pink line is actual risk. And what we see is that, well, that no matter people's age, no matter people's age group, there is a significant bias in terms of how people perceive their life expectancy. Basically, people, they expect to live longer than they actually are expected to live, according to objective estimates, which would be the pink lines. And this actually bias seems to shrink just at old age. So until men attain an age that exceeds the age of 64, they don't really perceive accurately their life expectancy. Well, this doesn't happen for women. Women actually seem to underestimate their life expectancy, and they just perceive accurately their life expectancy at the end of their life. Now, evidence on disability risk seems to show that people are optimistic when it comes to disability. There is a significant bias between the pink line, which is the risk to the individual, and the blue line, which is the risk to society, to other individuals. And people systematically see a higher risk to other individuals than to themselves. Why is that? Because risk perception contains a lot of private information that, of course, is determining prevention, determining issues such as the uptake of insurance policies. And, of course, we see here, again, a different behavior between men and women. There's a gender effect. Now, let's turn into examples in other areas, and particularly an area that is highly relevant is that of new technologies. And by new technologies, we mean a variety of technologies that include cloning, GM food, nuclear power, mobile phone radiation, so on and so forth. And what we are finding in our research on new technologies is that there is, again, optimism. People seem to be optimistic when it comes to the risk to themselves, and that is especially the case with products, with technologies that they have some experience with. So, for instance, in the case of mobile phones, people seem to perceive low risk to themselves as compared to the risk to society. Whereas in the case of radioactive waste, because they have absolutely no experience or very little experience, then the degree of optimism is very small. How do we measure optimism? Well, basically optimism, as mentioned before, is the bias, is the gap between how individuals perceive the risk to themselves and how they perceive the risk to society, and in this case, the risk to the environment. Now, let's turn to another example, which is quite controversial, especially in the UK, which is that of genetically modified food. As you probably know, there's no evidence on health effects associated with genetically modified food, but people do have an opinion about whether genetically modified food should be encouraged or discouraged. And what we show in one of our research papers is that the vast majority of the UK public seems to face some type of ambivalence when it comes to 
um, deciding on GM food. Ambivalence defined as they, they foresee high risk, high benefits, or low risk, low benefits, uh, moral unacceptable um, um, attitudes, and so on and so forth. So basically what we did is we constructed a measure of ambivalence, of ambivalent, ambivalent attitudes, and what we find is that more ambivalent people with regards to GM food are more likely to discourage GM food. And that's a form of protection against the potential effects of GM food. When uh, individuals don't really, uh, when, when they are not fully aware of the effects of a technology, they tend to have a conservative attitude. They tend to reject uh, the, the attitude, uh, they tend to reject the technology and, and uh, exert some form of risk protection. And that was um, one, of, one of our pieces of work. Then another piece of work that Caroline mentioned is that of um, people anchoring their behavior and their, and their perceptions in their political beliefs. Anchoring uh, is quite uh, a well-known bias in, in social psychology, and uh, economists uh, have picked it up in order to explain some anomalies in, uh, in certain behaviors. And particularly, when it comes to attitudes to nuclear power, uh, what we um, came across with was the idea that people's anchoring in their political beliefs determines their attitudes towards nuclear power. So, for instance, uh, right-wing individuals, they would tend to be generally more in favor to uh, genetically modified food once a set of controls was introduced. So once we control by income, uh, socioeconomic uh, determinants, uh, beliefs, and so on and so forth, still our findings suggest that um, you know, politics does matter when it comes to attitudes to nuclear power, and, and that's uh, because you know, uh, um, getting informed uh, and acquiring information on the effects of nuclear power is so costly that individuals tend to anchor their attitudes on uh, some form of, uh, uh, let's say, cognitive um, mechanism that normally is portrayed through uh, political uh, affiliation. And finally, um, the last example that we wanted to, to, to discuss and, and illustrate today uh, is that of food. And I'll just talk about one particular study where we show evidence of uh, what we regard as analogic decision-making. Here what we did was uh, examine risk perceptions of three risks, uh, the so-called mad cows, which was the bobin spongiform encephalopathy, uh, GM food, and uh, dioxin in chickens. And we asked um, a representative sample of individuals to um, elicit the risk perceptions. And what we find is the distribution of the three risks is almost the same. No mad despite the fact that the three risks are quite different in both exposure, in probability, and in, in a large variety of different characteristics. So uh, this, this evidence shows that uh, individuals tend to um, create some form of analogies between risks that uh, happen in, uh, about the same time. So, for instance, the mad cow disease was the first one to step in, and that determined the risk perception. And then the dioxin... Uh, um, pandemic um, kicked in, and finally the GM food. And people, what they tend to do is uh, associate the different risks and form a, a common uh, risk perception, no matter uh, the fact that, uh, that the three risks are substantially different. So maybe, Caroline, you want to continue? 
So a final piece of work that we're going to talk about today is regarding avian flu risk. We looked at the likelihood that individuals would reduce their consumption of poultry when there were avian flu cases in Europe. So in the spring of 2006, there were rising cases of avian flu in Europe amongst birds and in some countries mammals. There were only human cases in Turkey, so there weren't any actually in the European Union. I'll go into more detail on that in a second. So our question was, what is it that makes people reduce their consumption of poultry during this time of kind of uncertainty? And we worked with three hypotheses. One was, is it simply just knowledge? The more that people know, the more that they feel in control and they can make informed decisions and know how to prevent a risk. Secondly, the more that they're close to a risk or they have proximity to a risk, the less likely they are to change their behavior because they feel like they know about it more. And this hypothesis came from a study that was done about people who lived near the World Trade Center during 9-11. And those who lived within 100 miles of the World Trade Center in New York City were asked about the possibility of five different terrorist attacks. And then people who lived farther away were asked the same thing. And the individuals that had lived close to the World Trade Center, they perceived the risks of these five different types of terrorist attacks as much higher. So that makes sense and would be what theory would expect. So we wanted to test that in this case, too. So the third thing was, what role does media exposure have? The media acting either as an alarming agent, so getting people worked up and scared, or confidence building, this situation is under control, nothing to worry about, or something to be aware of, but here's what you need to do about it. So we worked with these three hypotheses. Why did we look at this? One, because there's clearly macroeconomic implications for reduction in poultry. It matters for poultry farmers. It matters for countries that are poultry exporters and so on. So there's huge costs related. There's also microeconomic costs. If I'm foregoing poultry and it's my favorite type of protein, then I'm not maximizing my utility or doing what I want to do most. If I'm choosing to eat fish instead, then I'm making a choice perhaps against my preferences when I don't need to. And the idea was that we wanted to give some data behind what should the policy reaction then look like. And the ultimate goal is to reduce the likelihood that people will overreact. So here's the kind of timeline we were looking at. The first cases of avian flu in the European region were in Turkey, Croatia, and the U.K. in October 2005. And then there were human cases emerging in Turkey in December 2005. And then you see a kind of jump up in February and March of 2006. The survey that we looked at was taken around this time. And they asked people, are you consuming more or less or the same amount of poultry during this period that you were six months ago? And what the data showed was not a lot. I mean, 20% of people were eating less poultry than six months ago. 15% were having less eggs. But largely people were kind of sticking with their behaviors from before. This was self-reported behavior, so we don't really know if people were being truthful and actually telling us exactly what they were doing in terms of changing their behavior. So we wanted to unpack this a little more and understand, well, who are these 20% who are these people that are actually reducing their consumption? And there was a set of knowledge questions that we looked at. 
And they asked, there are a couple of different categories in them, and some of them are about transmission between humans, the first one, which had the highest number of incorrect responses. Then there were three questions about cooking and kind of consumption of chicken. And those three, one was asking people, it is not dangerous to eat the meat of a chicken vaccinated against avian flu, which is true. Even when it is contaminated, poultry is not a health risk if it is cooked, which is true. And the avian influenza virus contained in an egg or present on its shell can be eliminated by prolonged cooking, which is also true. And in this setting, both an incorrect response and a don't know response are sort of public health failures. Because either not knowing the wrong information or not knowing anything at all are equally problematic. So for those three questions that were about poultry consumption and egg consumption, we had a very high number of don't knows. We had the lowest number of correct responses regarding chicken and vaccination. And we had the highest number of don't knows also regarding that question. The highest number of correct responses came in this question about if a chicken is contaminated by avian flu on a farm, all the poultry on that farm must be destroyed immediately. My hunch is that this is because there was a lot of media coverage of chicken calling back then. So when widespread amounts of chickens had to be culled, then the media was covering a lot. So people were really quite aware of that policy intervention. So we worked on the hypothesis that the consumption of poultry and eggs during this time period was dependent upon knowledge and then experience. So whether there had been avian flu, either within birds, mammals, or humans in your country of residence. And we looked at all European Union countries as well as Turkey and Croatia in this survey. So there's 29 countries. And the summary of what we found was what economics would predict and also psychology, which is the more you know, the less likely you are to make a behavioral change, reduce your consumption of poultry. So psychology might say, okay, this is because people feel like they have more control over the situation. Economics would say, well, you're a more informed decision maker, so you know what decision to make. What about experience? So if a country had, if someone lived in a country where avian flu had emerged, they're more likely to reduce their consumption, which makes sense because they feel like it's right there in their backyard, and so they're more likely to change their behavior. Some of this could be due to a societal discussion. So it's something in the media. It's something people are talking about. But what's interesting and what's interesting from a policy perspective is that when we looked at the role of both knowledge and experience together, that what we found was once a country has avian flu in it, people disregard the level of knowledge they have. Knowledge all of a sudden becomes unimportant. So basically, there's avian flu and everyone starts changing their behaviors. What does this mean for policy? Well, what it means is, say this reemerges, right? And avian flu is quite different than swine flu because the virulence is a lot higher, it's more deadly, and so on. But it hasn't spread a lot, hasn't spread as quickly as swine flu. But if countries can inform people more about what's going on prior to an avian flu outbreak again, if there is one, then you'll have less of a change in individuals' consumption, which would have macroeconomic benefits and microeconomic benefits. And finally, one of our other findings was that the individual way that each country is handling and covering and discussing this issue 
had a major influence on people's behaviors. So Joanne's going to say a couple words in conclusion. Okay, just to conclude, we just wanted to mention what we are doing now. And essentially, our main target is to expand the so-called demands for health models. I mean, if any of you are studying any health policy MSE, I'm sure you would have come across with all the demand for health modeling. And it assumes perfect foresight. They are models that assume that individuals have perfect knowledge of their future health and they discount future health. There's all these models within economic theory that talk about rational addiction. Some people smoke because they are rational addicts. And what we're trying to do here is to challenge some of these established theories and include evidence from the research that we are undertaking. So in a sense, it's not that we want to replace those models, but we try to expand them so as to include all these type of biases. And secondly, we will try to contribute to the debate on the expected utility framework. There is plenty of evidence that individuals don't really perceive the risks as experts do, as we mentioned before. And that means that the expected utility framework doesn't really work perfectly well, and it has to be adjusted by all these biases that we've been finding. Now, why are we doing this? Well, one of the reasons is because there's available data, for instance, longitudinal data from different countries, so we can compare how people perceive risks in different countries. And at the same time, we are planning to undertake some experiments. Experimental economics and behavioral economics is growing quite fastly, and we just want to contribute to that growth in the area of health. And of course, for obvious policy implications. Fundamentally, the two areas where we are trying to contribute are, on the one hand, defining incentive for health behavior. Obesity, for instance, would be the obvious case study. And health risk communication. If individuals don't really perceive the risks as they are expected to, then we need to understand how they perceive the risk in order to communicate the messages so that individuals behave as health prevention policies would expect them to do. So I think that that's what we wanted to say, and we'd be very happy to take some questions, if there are any. It's just a suggestion when it comes to risk. I think that, if I may suggest, the culture of a society is what binds society together. And when people become outliners, it tends to cause a little bit of, how can I say, friction within that society. So, for instance, the GM foods you talked about, you're saying that people do not perceive, a certain group of people do not perceive risk in a way, and it doesn't affect health behavior. But if you're in a country where there's a lot of interaction between nature, then you can extend it to affect health behavior, because people see the imbalance of the society in terms of insects perhaps not producing and pollinating, blah, 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 going right up the food chain. So eventually it would have an effect on health behavior. So I just think stopping short of living in 
different countries <laughs> and conducting economics. <laughs> I mean, our lives are too short. I think we need to understand, put a greater emphasis in economics about cultures, because only by doing that can we then put in the right variables or uh, uh, macroeconomic models. And I think this is very important in this age of globalization. It's just a suggestion. <laughs> Thank you. I know that within um, the public health literature, there's a big move now for research on specific ethnicities and how they respond to risk communication strategies. And that's something that with now with the swine flu um, situation at present, it's something that um, I know I'm going to start looking into pretty soon. So there's both the cultural ethnic element that I think is really, really important. I agree. Yeah, uh, I fully agree. And uh, I wouldn't even add the fact that um, <clears throat> one of the areas that has been developed uh, but needs to be developed further is the, the impact of the media uh, because the media is becoming more and more global. So even though you know, living in a country where you see uh, GM food being pollinized or whatever uh, would affect your, exp your, your perceptions, at the same time the media, uh, by being more global, um, has made has approximate uh, has approximated um, these local cultures that you're talking about uh, to the more developed uh, and Western world, and that's uh, something that should be taken into account. The role of the media uh, as a conveyor of information, as well as um, you know spotting uh, you know those particular cultures that that uh, might be more sensitive to. Uh, so, some, some type of uh, risk perceptions. Looking at this from the perspective, I see you mentioned optimism. And I'm wondering if anyone is looking at healthcare from sort of a positive set of risks, from a positive uh, perspective, sort of a sustainable healthcare policy. In, in the area of positive psychology, they look more at human strengths and what works well instead of looking at the negative because, you know, as you look at the darker side of things, then that tends to happen. So they look at uh, institutions that encourage health and health behaviors. Is anyone looking at from that perspective? Which can also include cultural differences, but positive psychology looks at ubiquitous common traits in all people, and then core, and then expanding out, looking at culture as well. well the, the problem is that in the area of risk, risk is risk is, is conceptualized as a, I mean, especially psychologists conceptualize, I mean, economists conceptualize risk as as a, as a simply a subjective probability. But, uh, but uh, psychologists conceptualize risk as the, as, as, as the, the existence of a threat, uh, as the intensity of a threat, the perceived intensity of a threat. So it's, it's by definition negative. Uh, the idea of risk in psychology would be by definition negative. So in those terms, uh, it's hard to, to look at more positive aspects. Although uh, I totally agree that within the, the health literature, um, you know, there should be probably more emphasis on the on things that work as well as on things that, that, that seem not to, to be working. Right. And happiness literature as well. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So in a way, in a way, um, the evidence of optimist of, of, of uh, optimism bias. 
kind of goes along the lines of what you're suggesting. But it's, so people seem to be optimistic, and that's what you know makes them, you know, uh, go ahead. But uh, it seems to be that um, you know uh, real risks do not seem to to uh, go you know in line or uh, in parallel to to how people perceive the risks. Yes, they should they, they should be adjusted. That's right. Um, I'm thinking about the future implication for health policy. Uh, do you think that people, uh, that the findings, so that people's behaviors are going to be similar for this AH1N1 uh, influence virus? Do you, you mean the, the avian flu findings? Yes. So if that means that people's behavior will be similar? Yes, yes, of course. Um, I think that they're, well, epidemiologically, the viruses are quite different. Um, I kind of alluded to that in the when I was speaking, but um, you know, swine flu is more ubiquitous; more people have it, um, and it's something that we're getting more familiar with. So it's been around for a little while now, and now that we have the vaccine, I think the discussion for the risk literature is more about who's going to get vaccinated and who's going to um, and why. And I mean, there's something that we can actively do about the swine flu, swine flu situation, whereas with avian flu, um, there isn't quite as much. There's, um, you know, there's less sort of active preventative behaviors, and there's, it's more about not taking overreactions. Rational addict theories were mentioned just at the end of the talk, and I'm wondering um, what exactly are they, and how do you hypothesize that your research might expand those models? Uh, what was the first rational, rational? Rational addict um, theories. Okay, yeah, sure. Well, that's, that's uh, I mean, it's a relatively old literature uh, developed by, by uh, Gary Baker and Murphy in a, in, a, in a paper in the 70s, and basically they argue that people discount future uh, years lost as a result of smoking. So then, you know, if you accept that you will live six years less, that's fine, you smoke and you are rational, you are a rational smoker because you simply accept that you will lose, you know, you will lose six years and that's fine. So, so long as there is perfect evidence, uh, perfect information as, as regards the cost of smoking, you know, you are rational if you internalize that information and you act upon it. That's a rational smoker. Thanks for your attention and your questions. Yeah, thank you.